I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. We have news for you all. Yeah, we are so excited to share that as so many of you have asked for us to host more than just one week-long immersive experience, we are bringing another retreat into the fold this year, and this time we're headed to Nosara, Costa Rica, June 3rd through 10th, yeah? We heard you. We heard you. We're doing more. We're trying. (laughs) This time, though, we're actually bringing in two of our dear friends and colleagues to come along with us and join the party. So we're going to have Ashley Torrent and Millie Murillo there. Um, And honestly, the four of us together, I don't know, our powers combined, drawing from our collective work in the healing modalities of psychotherapy, coaching, mediumship, astrology, somatic movement, group processing, all the things. We'll be supporting you all in reclaiming every aspect of the most fulfilling life you can possibly live. It's going to be such a transformational week. I'm so excited already. And if you are interested in learning more, you can go to the link in either of our social bios or head over to Vanessa's website at vanessabennett.com. And we have payment plans available for this one as well. Yeah, definitely hit me up on email if you want to know more about that. We are super excited and we hope to see you all there. Well, I'm here to report that my voice still sounds like a man. <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. Aww. That's my preemptive to our conversation today, didn't I? I mean, it doesn't to me, but you know your voice best. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, hear my, if you hear my mic go dark for a hot second, it's because I'm coughing into the abyss and I've muted you all so you don't have to hear me coughing into your ears. But as I always say, toddlers, those dirty little germ buckets that they are. 
<laughs> People get so offended when I say that. I'm like, well, they it's do? true. It's I'm true. Like, they obviously don't. I've never had a toddler. They're right? offended. Um, sucks. Okay, so we're going to answer some questions and kind of riff on some topics that people have written in that they want some clarity around. We have two today, but they definitely feel like they overlap a little bit. So um, one, I'll, without actually reading the kind of background, really, she just asks us to kind of go deeper and shed some light around the subject of trauma bonds, okay. which I do think is something that I hear being talked about a lot, you know, especially out there in like the social media wellness landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, so trauma bonds. So kind of put a pin in that for a second while I actually read the next one, because I do, like I said, I feel like there's some overlap here. So the other question is, um, and this was in response to me posting something about relationship safety. They mm-hmm. said, how do you extend safety if they claim that their authentic self is someone who really likes alcohol? My husband has been free of alcohol for over a year, but says he doesn't feel like himself without it. But his drinking is what caused major problems. I believe him. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, something we've talked about before, I think on the podcast is, um, so Bill W who is the man who started Alcoholics Anonymous had a series of exchanges with Carl Jung and talking about the issues of what is happening for the alcoholic, what is happening with someone when they are grappling with an addiction. And he said basically that he believed that alcoholism or addiction was a low level thirst that could not be quenched for a sense of wholeness. Um, Mm. It was a spiritual bankruptcy within. So it's really, I am looking to fill a bucket of self that has a hole in the bottom, right? Like I am looking to find my connection to something that I have felt disconnected from. And that's myself, right? But Mm. the self, the capital S S self, the soul. And so I, I believe him when he says that, you know, I think we feel, you know, alcohol is called spirit spirits Mm -hmm. for a reason, right? Because when we use drugs or alcohol, there's um, often the experience of transcendence and that I am connected to something larger than myself in a way that makes me feel a wholeness I've been longing to feel for a lifetime. And I think quite often the suffering that comes with letting go of whatever um, addiction we are using to self-soothe the pain of that is the lack of the fullness of self, the feeling like a whole self that I felt while I was using. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I would even say as somebody who I don't, I don't feel like I've ever had an issue with drugs and alcohol. Like I don't, I don't have more of the, I guess, compulsive personality for that, but well, I have my own compulsions, (laughs) codependency and people pleasing, you know, all those fun things. Um, but as far as like compulsion on like, you know, substances, so, uh, sweets, drugs, alcohol, any of those kind of things. Um, what I will say is that for me, when I, let's say I drink, for example, right? It's different. Like like pot doesn't necessarily do the same thing for me, but alcohol as a social lubricant, mm. right? Which I think so many people use it for that purpose, even if they're not necessarily, you know, what would be considered an addict. Um, to me, I don't know that it connects me to what I feel is something bigger than myself. I think what it does is it turns down the voices of you're being too much, you're talking too much, you're taking up too much space, people are judging you, uh, you know, be less of yourself. All of those voices get 
muted or turned down. And in a weird way, I actually do feel like I can be more of my authentic self. Yeah. I think that's exactly why like any person who struggled with any addiction would literally articulate the exact same thing for the first time in my life. The narrative that was circulating about why I was too much, why I was not enough, why I didn't fit in, why I didn't belong. All of that didn't matter. Right. Mm. A lot of times you hear people, um, speak about it like a cloak of safety that they're mm. immediately covered in. And just who I am is perfect. It's enough. I'm all good. And I feel this like safety in my skin as myself that I've been longing to feel my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever actually had to put words to that before, but it's interesting to hear you say back that that's like a really common thing that people say. Um, you know, and also is it Kabar Mate that, that wrote the, the realm of the hungry ghosts? Yeah. Such a good book. Such a good book if you haven't read it and you're interested. But we read that in grad school, actually. Well, excerpts from it. But just even that title, right? Like sit with that title, The Realm yeah. of Hungry Ghosts. Um, and the way that you and I talk about addiction, I think in general, it, it, similar. I, I think it's more similar to maybe Gabar Mate's work. But just this idea that every one of us looks to something to help soothe the nervous system, to help soothe the feelings of not enoughness and not belonging and all these things that are common existential human issues. Uh, you know, so again, like going back to mine, it's like mine might be control and people pleasing and, um, manipulation and not being honest about things in order to not rock the boat and not speaking up and, you know, all my more like codependent tendencies, just as much of an addiction. Like I, I feel a high or I feel okay when I'm doing them and I feel the opposite of that when I'm not. I feel an existential um, fear of annihilation, right? Like I will be snuffed out. My relationship will end. I will not be able to tolerate the discomfort of this conflict that will ensue. This person won't like me, all those things. And isn't that essentially the same thing? Like we're all trying to numb. Yeah. The pain of feeling like who I am <clears throat> in my core, my essence is not enough or it's too much, right? And that's that original wound of really, you know, what I understand as the detachment from source that we mm -hmm. come into these bodies and we sort of forget who we are. It's like that initial, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the initial wounding or the initial trauma? Amnesia. amnesia. <laughs> I couldn't find the word amnesia. Funny, um, the, you could not think of the word amnesia. I could amnesia. not think of the word amnesia. Ironic. Right? <laughs> um, so yeah, we come into these bodies and we have this sort of amnesia around why we're here and who we essentially are. And we have that annihilation anxiety that you're speaking of. And we think if I don't connect to my caretakers, I, I will be annihilated. Like we mm -hmm. know that's the case on some level. So our sense of safety... Um, depends on us being able to attach to people. And so that is the conditioning that we get when we first come in these bodies. But it used to be um, societies would usher babies into their bodies and the entire community would come in and let them know the extent to which they belonged and mm -hmm. their 
particular gifts were exactly what the society has been needing. And you are a part of our tribe because you're here. And so there's nothing that you need to do because God's source brought you to us because you were necessary. But we don't do that anymore. We live in a society where we teach people, you need to spend your entire life proving that you belong by what you accomplish and what you earn and the way that you show up and that you're, you're not too much or you're, you know, you're, um, you get rid of that thing of not, not being enough by accumulating power or material goods or however we do it. But the original wound is I am separate from source, which is the illusion because we could never be separate from our essence, but that is the thing that we're, um, struggling to feel. And I, I believe a lot of times drugs and alcohol or people pleasing or um, gambling or shopping or food or whatever the thing gives us that temporary relief of, ah, oh, in this moment. I belong. I feel I'm okay. Like I belong and I'm okay. Yeah. 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 Um, another thing too, you know, there's a common understanding or saying that whenever the addiction started is essentially the point at which emotionally you were kind of frozen in time, right? So like your development emotionally kind of stops at that point. So when I think of like um, my ex who really started drinking heavily around 16, and then I looked at him as an adult, right? So when we were at our, our biggest peak of struggling, let's say I think he was maybe 34 or 35. And I thought, I think now, right, in hindsight, like, oh, Yes, I was in partnership with somebody who was like 34, 35, but emotionally he was 16, right? And and that was a really big eye-opener for me because it really puts into perspective not only like what you're dealing with, it definitely gave me empathy, but it also helped me, at least in that relationship, it helped me create a boundary that I needed to and kind of walk away from it because that person was not willing in any way to look at it or do any work with it at all, like staunchly in the position of like, there is no problem here. You're the problem. And instead of, I mean, look, that was my relationship was like my awakening in so many ways. Right. But instead of like exhausting myself, trying to come at this relationship and this person from all angles, trying to make him see, you know, what he needed to fix and the error of his ways and how much better things could be. If only, if only, if only, if only I finally like just got a little, too exhausted on my own shit and just walked away from it all. But um, that was a long-winded way, I guess, to bring up that point around like that emotional, that stunting that happens, right? When we become addicted to substances. Yeah. And, you know, I know that I've, I've referenced that point and I, I think that's certainly um, a 12-step, like one of those like things they tell you in 12-step groups, right? And I don't know that... I completely agree with it anymore to the extent that I think that all of us are like little children mm -hmm. running around in adult bodies. And that is like that, that thing that we talk about a lot that like, we are all addicts. You say like one person's people pleasing um, is another Coke person's is Jack another and person's Coke. Yeah. People. Yeah. And I think that that's to me a little bit like what I, I find ends up happening. And this is sort of you know how we talked about like me saying patriarchy and how long it takes. I think that sometimes like the 12 step models can be sort of patriarchal in terms of like a power over, or mm. I am like in a hierarchical place um, over the addict. The addict mm -hmm, is below mm -hmm. me and I sort of oh, like, yeah. <laughs> need to fix that person because they're oh, yeah. broken and I'm sort of in my righteousness around that. And to your point, like the codependent energy that is normally partnered with the addict, like that's your form of addiction. Um, and both of you are still wounded children attempting mm -hmm. to get your needs met. One might be doing it through their Jack and Coke, but the other person is doing it through their attempt to control this other person, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, so it's no wonder that we're all running around children in adult bodies because all of us are pretty much stunted. <laughs> totally. Well, but so yeah. then let's talk so, about trauma bonds, right? Like what is that overlay? Because mm-hmm. I feel like even bringing the conversation and I'm pretty candid about my conversations around my relationships in the past, but I can very clearly see that relationship as a quote unquote trauma bond. I also feel like that term gets thrown around pretty loosely. Um, yeah. I heard somebody actually once talk about, um, which I love. I love how people are starting to take these, um, these words that we used to hear in more of like the spiritual realm, the spiritual psychology realm, and they're starting to like break them down. So like what we used to call somebody like a twin flame and they're like, well, is it a twin flame or is it actually a trauma bond? Right. And that I kind of loved because it was like, well, this is like you or my, you know, you and I kind of argue on the idea of empathy where I'm like, well, is it a spiritual gift that I was born with or is it a learned trauma response? Right. Um, but what are your, what are your thoughts on trauma bonds? I mean, I have mine, but I'm curious to know. Yeah, I think it's very similar to that. I think in the same way that, you know, yes, everything is trauma to an extent. And um, we have big T and little t traumas and all of us are traumatized, like literally coming out of the birth canal is a traumatizing experience for a human being. Um, And I think to the point, I think I hear you making, I think this is like going to be me going out on a limb and saying this, I think the majority of our adult relationships in our society are quote trauma bonds, meaning I I don't think that many people have what I would consider like authentic, healthy love. I think our, yeah, our ego mind attempts to do is heal the wounds of our childhood through subconsciously selecting a person who reminds us of the parent um, normally one, but it can be both parents, but whatever we didn't get from the parent that we long to get it from, we will sort of seek out someone that replicates that dynamic unconsciously in the hopes that if I can just get this person to meet the needs that I didn't get from that parent, then I'll be worthy of the love that I didn't feel worthy of initially when I didn't get it. Right. And so is that a trauma bond? Like, I mean, it was certainly probably quote, traumatic to a certain extent to not get those needs met when I was a child. And so if I'm attempting to bond with someone not based on who we are in our authentic selves, but based on um, the pain that a lot of times we end up continuing to perpetuate, which is I think what people mean when they talk about a trauma bond is that we're just like consistently continuing to wound one another in the ways that we were wounded when we were little. But I would argue that's what most Um, of our adult relationships in our society end up being just because there's just not a lot of conscious thought about like the deeper layers of why I'm attracted to the person I'm attracted to, you know? Yeah, totally. I agree. Yeah. I I agree with that completely. I think that maybe it's more helpful to look at the idea of trauma bonds as like a spectrum where Mm. just like trauma, you know, we, we kind of, as therapists talk about this, like lower T capital T trauma, and it's not to minimize or, it's not to minimize any trauma. It's just to say like, there are obviously things that are, everybody would agree like, holy shit, that's traumatic. And then there are things that happen to us kind of more in a subtle way that over time, yes, that, that, that causes trauma, right. Or is traumatic. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at trauma bonds as more of a spectrum where it's like, yes, you might be relating to somebody or in this relationship in a bonded way that is based entirely on some major traumatic incidences and wounds in both of your, you know, both of your lives. And also the way that we unconsciously choose people, so few people consciously choose their partners, right? Or even their friendships, really. Any chosen relationship, I would say. 
that to your point, I would argue that to a certain extent, maybe that's, maybe that's lowercase t trauma bonds, but that's still a trauma bond, right? I always say, um, in relationships, you know, there's never only two people in a relationship. There's always four. There's the two conscious minds and then there's the two unconscious minds. And the two conscious minds always think that they're calling the shots. Like we run around thinking that we know it all and that we're, we've got this, but they're not at all. Like it's the two unconscious that are running all of the place, right? And um, when we understand that about our chosen relationships, it really helps us um, pull back, I guess, uh, uh, see the dynamic from a little bit more of a pulled out perspective, not so deep in it, not so personalized. Um, and, and you start to be able to say, ooh, what was that? Like, where did that come from? What was that pull? What was that heightened emotion? What was that conflict? You know, um, and then through that, you can actually, I think you can create more conscious relationships, but I would argue that almost no relationship is conscious going into it. Again, chosen relationship. And yeah. And here's the thing. Like, I think it's Dr. Bruce Lipton's work that speaks to this. Um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people do, but um, we literally spend like 93% of our lives in our subconscious, right? So like mm-hmm. 7% of the time the iceberg we're in image. that conscious, right? Like that is not where we live. So it's not like most of the time we're sort of like reacting from that subconscious space, the things that we felt hurt by. And so that is the place that we sort of live in our, our relationships. And so it's just, I think important to bring that forward as well. It's like, it takes a lot of really present effort, like conscious effort to bring ourselves back into the space of um, looking at the ways that we're relating with one another and why, you know? Yeah. I know like recently in an, I don't know if it was like in the heat of the argument or maybe towards the end of the argument. A couple times now I have found myself in an argument with my partner and I have actually stopped at the end or towards the end and I have said, okay, so some part of you chose mm-hmm. this dynamic and some part of me chose this dynamic. So if we keep circling around these same arguments, these same issues, right, which is so common in couples we need to pull back and say, what part of this am I like trying to heal a historical pattern or an old wound or, you know, something from childhood? Like what about this feels familiar? Because we have to be able to say, again, if what I just said is true, which is like, mo- we don't consciously choose our relationships because to your point, 97% of the time, 90% of the time we're in our unconscious. Okay. So let's look at that. Because I think there's real power in being able to, you might not be able to name it right away. Like that actually might, maybe you take that question away and you go talk to your personal therapist about it or whatever. But I think having that question in a relationship, especially when you find yourself in that kind of like swirling, same argument, same pattern kind of dynamic, I think that can be really powerful if both people are kind of willing to to ask those questions. Yeah. And I mean, we don't have control over whether the other person does or not, but what I've found helpful for myself as a tangible tool, if I feel really activated by something someone else does, I force myself to pause and wait 24 hours before I talk to them about it. So Mm. like say my kid's dad does something and I'm like hot, I will make myself sit with that before I take it to him because no matter what, inevitably I feel different about it when I'm not in that reaction reactionary space. And also there's something about like me processing, like, 
what if this is mine? What if this is his? Like, what feels familiar about this? That if I give myself that 24 hour, like, um, grace period, somehow it just feels different. And it's not like, I don't know, like that we don't still need to process or talk about things, but it's just my conscious adult self versus my activated child that is bringing the conversation forward. And it's a very different conversation and it always feels different. And mostly to me, because Mm -hmm. I meet the conversation in a way that I can feel proud of Mm -hmm. versus feeling shame about, you know what I mean? Okay. So this is, I could not agree more. And I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball in here and say, Mm -hmm. how does that apply to somebody. So like using myself as an example, because I know I represent a large population of people out there communicating wise, communication wise, Mm -hmm. people like me who tend to err on the side of not speaking at all. Right. So, um, I have employed a similar tactic and what I have found is like, it also becomes a lot easier for me when I let myself wait until the emotion of it has passed to then just not talk about it at all. So then to just sweep it under the rug, it's not a big deal. The emotion is gone now. So now it's like, it's easier for me to just pretend that it didn't happen and not actually speak up about it. And so I love that tactic. And I wonder where does that, somebody like me, like, where does that fit into that? Well, here's what I want to ask you to give me an example of a time when I would have just not spoken about it, but it was really important for me to speak about it because I think that's helpful especially as we sort of process like the 24 hour pause, because here's the thing. I do think a lot of times, like a large percentage of what we offer to our partners to like grapple with and we don't need to say with me. Like, (laughs) I I think sometimes it it doesn't really serve our our connections, our relationships. Like, I think not everything is for my partner to hold and process for me. Now that's not me saying like withhold intimacy and don't like let them see you. That's not it. But like, I would, I just love for us to play with like a, here's a time when like, it was important though, for me to actually talk about this. If there's one that comes to mind that you wouldn't mind sharing. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I don't know if I have a specific example. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, this is from like the bypasser that will like let most things talked about. So I'm probably not the best person to ask, to be honest. I'm trying to think of a specific example. I mean, I just know that I have I have always had a tendency, and again, I mean, so many people I've worked with in codependency recovery have similar tendencies, which is to just take everything and put it under the rug, right? Like nothing is worth talking about. And then we just like sit with and stew in our own resentment around it, right? I mean, go ahead. That's the key. But to me- Well, it's the resentment feeling. In the 24 hours, yes. Am I in right relationship with this thing? Because if I'm still feeling resentment, then I'm not. Like, then that's actually like, I need to get clear about like- what about this resentment do I still need to process? And maybe with that person, there's a request that I need to make. Um, Or maybe there's a story I'm telling myself about what should be happening between us that may or may not be the case. But I think the resentment piece to me feels like that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's usually when I, when I work with clients on this, I, you know, obviously I use resentment so often as a tool, like an indicator, pause, slow down, something's going on. Something is asking for you to pay attention to it. Right. And a lot of times with people who err on the side of like, they don't ever speak up about anything, you know, they don't communicate boundaries, they don't communicate hurt feelings, all these things. Um, I'll kind of like half jokingly say, communicate everything because even your feeling of this is too much communicating, this is uncomfortable for most people probably still isn't actually that much communication. So if you err more on the side of the person who doesn't speak up, maybe even more like the avoidant, 
what feels to you like, oh my God, I'm speaking up about everything for the the average person is probably going to be like, oh, they're actually communicating sometimes. <laughs> like it's not going to seem that intense, right? And I, I feel like sometimes that is a good exercise for yourself. If you in the beginning of this practice can't discern what feels like I need to talk about this and what feels like, ah, oh, maybe I don't need to talk about this. Maybe the practice for you is actually just to bring a lot of it, almost all of it forward and not in an accusatory way, right? Even the example that you said where you're like, um, you know, uh, there's something about this that doesn't really sit right with me. The, the story I'm telling myself, you can still have those kind of conversations with a partner or a friend. You can still say to somebody, Hey, that thing that you said the other day, it hurt my feelings. I've been sitting with it. I haven't really been able to figure out why the story I'm telling myself about it is this, even though I know logically that's not true and more like workshop it, right? I use that word a lot, like workshop it with them and allow them to witness you in the, at least the attempt to verbalize what's going on for you. Um, but yeah, I think I, I tell people, especially in the beginning, like err on the side of trying to communicate everything because I guarantee you're not going to anyway. <laughs> it's probably going to feel pretty normal for other people. Yeah. I mean, two things that come up around that. What I want to name is I do think that's a tool um, when I'm starting to get into the space of even identifying what I'm feeling. Totally. And, you know, I think when I have really been in the space of codependency for so long that I don't even know what is mine versus what is like, like, what, what do I feel like? I don't mm -hmm. even know. Like, I don't even know how to identify what I'm feeling. I think that's really helpful. Um, and I love the tool of the story I'm telling myself because what that does is it doesn't sort of put that person in that accusatory space of like, what is mine is your responsibility. It takes ownership of the story I'm telling myself. But the other thing I want to say, and I heard, I hear so often what you're saying about the person who doesn't talk about anything. Clients say this to me constantly. And what I want to say <laughs> to those of you who that's the story you're telling yourself, you speak without, without speaking. Oh, I know. It's passive aggression. Oh, it's know. I'm withholding, like, you know, I'm, I'm meeting Love you with affection. A energy. Yep. Yeah. And so it's not like, oh, I never say anything about it. Oh, you're speaking. You're just not taking responsibility for what you're actually feeling. You're not doing that deeper level of work you're sort of like meeting that person in the energy of resentment and energy has the energy of resentment has a very specific tone to it. You know what I mean? I will say yes. And I am a master <laughs> compartmentalizer. So for better or worse, a lot of the work that I've had to do on myself is also around like I can have something happen and in a lightning flash to the point where it's so fast, I don't even realize I'm doing it right. Hmm. Swallow it put a fucking smile on my face and pretend like everything is fucking fine. And I actually would challenge you today sometimes if you're on the receiving end of it to even notice that it's happened. Because yes, I agree with you. There are times when it's impossible to hide and you're walking around in your resentment and that's an energetic exchange. But when you're fucking master at it, when you've done it for 40 plus years, you know, I tell you, like, there have been many times where, like, even I don't even realize, like, I've convinced myself that I'm mm. totally fine and I'm acting accordingly. <laughs> um, so I, I do think I'm, I'm only just pushing back a little bit because I actually do think there are those of us who are so fucking good at, like, piecing, taking that piece of themselves and shoving it into the shadow that, um, and out of survival, we had to put a smile on our face and still actually to the untrained eye act like everything was perfectly fucking fine. 
Um, yeah. There's some of us that are just better. I mean, actors. I hear that. And I will, yeah, I will say though, and I, I think you're right that there are ways that like, I might bury it to the fact where I've convinced myself that I'm fine with this. And if you're in the space of resentment, very rarely do I find that energetically people aren't picking up on that feeling. Cause if you're still feeling resentment, it's not a secret to you. I feel resentful of it. You know what I mean? And so that's a little bit of a different thing we're talking about. If I've convinced myself this is okay and I've sort of bypassed my way through it, that's a little different than I'm sitting stewing in the space of resentment. And what I talk to clients a lot about is if you are in that space of resentment, I promise you the people around you feel it. You guys might not be talking about it, but that has a very specific energetic to it. Yeah. You know? Oh, I do. <laughs> Oh, I do. You know resentment, V? Are you familiar? Oh, we're best friends. Toxic, toxic relationship, me and resentment. But man, we go way back. (laughs) Well, so just real quick to the person's, the initial question that they asked, they said, how do I create safety, right? How do you create Um, safety with somebody who, in a relationship with somebody who believes that their authentic self is, you know, enjoys alcohol too much? Yeah. I mean, I think what this person is learning to do if they're a year into their sobriety journey is learning to create safety within themselves, within their own skin. So a lot of your work is to, you know, tend to what comes up for you when that person is activated or, you know, not feeling safe in their skin and you want to rush in and fix that because they have had the release valve of drugs and alcohol for so long that they don't know how to do that for themselves And a lot of times I I think that's not the space where you creating safety is actually that much of being in service to that person as you might think it is, you know? Yeah. And not feeling safe in their skin, I think can manifest in a lot of different behaviors. Like I think that can manifest in, um, maybe attacking, uh, shutting down, um, blaming, you know, there's a lot of ways I think that this overall feeling of not being safe in my skin can actually come forward and present itself as behaviors in my relationship. And I think, yes, it is our job on the receiving end of that. Um, if you're in relationship with somebody who is, like you said, a year into their sobriety journey is to, well, this is just our job, our, our work period, I guess. Um, am I personalizing it? Can I walk away? Can I say, you know what, that really hurt to hear you say that? But I know that's not about me, so I'm actually not going to take that on. What I am going to do is I'm going to leave for a while and go tend to myself. Um, you know, let me know if you need me kind of thing and actually set a boundary and uphold it um, and do the work around tending to yourself because especially in early and a year in is still very early, early days of sobriety, um, there is going to be a lot of acting out. There's going to be. And uh, it's going to be a lot of work for you as the partner to really start building and developing some serious um, boundaries and and self-care for you. Yeah. Yeah. And what are the ways that I do all of those things that Vanessa was just listing? My own form of that, right? Mm -hmm. So how can I bring the mirror back to myself and say, in what ways do I do that blaming, that, you know, projecting, whatever the thing is that I'm seeing in my partner, where does that show up for me? Yeah. All right, y'all. We will... I was going to say, see you later. I've done that a couple times in this where I'm like, we'll see you later. And I'm like, will we? We will see you later. (laughs) Maybe. We'll see you later. We'll be here. (laughs) We'll be here. You know where we are. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast. Mm -hmm.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com